Hi and welcome to Insecurity, a podcast about computer security built from the ground up. Visit our website at in-security.org for past episodes, the show notes, and to leave comments. You can contact us by sending an email to feedback at in-security.org or follow us on Twitter at Insecurity Show. My name is Matt. And my name's Max. How you doing this week, buddy? I'm doing fantastic. I had a great Christmas. I'm looking forward to New Year's Eve. And how was your Christmas? And I had a great Christmas, actually, and I'm looking forward to New Year's Eve. We had a barbecue, like a summer Christmas party for our or with our Kiwi and Aussie friends. So we all got together. We dressed in our summer's finest. I had on uh, a Hawaiian shirt and some short shorts. And then we had a nice barbecue. I take it you didn't have an ice storm like we had? No, no. Here in Vancouver, we only have civilized weather. It was, uh, <laughs> I think it was plus 10. Yeah. Plus that's, 10 and uh, super sunny. That's ridiculous. It was only about minus four here, but uh, it had rained, freezing rain and hung on trees and they were crashing all over the place. So um, there was... Something like 40,000 people in Toronto that were out of power for Christmas, which has got to suck. New Year's is going to be quiet for me here and for you. We're going to go up to Whistler. We've got a big bonfire and friends and uh, activities. Last year, someone had set up a skating rink. It's supposed to be minus 12 to minus 17 um, New Year's Day. And I know this because... I may or may not go for a polar bear dip in Lake Ontario. That sounds absolutely ridiculous. I'm not committing to anything, but they have like a hot tub. They have a hot tub? I I think you're doing it wrong. (laughs) The whole, (laughs) yeah, Someone sunk a hot tub in the lake. You're just like, we'll take photos and look very good at this. No, I, I don't know if it's a sauna or a hot tub. I've obviously not done any research and I'm... Carrie did a little bit of research and she's like, you need a partner. And I'm like, perfect. I'm going to go with somebody. And she goes, that's probably not enough. And she's going to be watching the um, world juniors in hockey at that same time. So she's not available. So it might not happen from a technicality perspective, but if it's possible, I'm willing to give it a try. Nice. Yeah. It's one of those bucket list things I want to accomplish. Might just be the last nail in the coffin, though. So who knows? Yay! So right now your bucket list is just one thing, which is freeze to death. No, 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 hopefully not. Um, It's just one of those things that I want to get done. Is it New Year's Eve tomorrow night? Holy cats. It is. Huh. Way to date the episode, huh? Yeah, a little bit. Surprise! You're not going to hear this for a month. (laughs) So what have we got in store for this week? Well, last time we went off tangent just to talk a little bit about risk and choosing to do stuff and definitely the internet cats. The internet cats are full of wind. But at the end of it, we said that we were talking about common vulnerabilities that exist in stuff and how to protect against them. So I want to hold through on that promise and talk about those things. Welcome to continuity. Yay! So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the vulnerabilities that are super common that are out there and have been published on websites like the OWASP Top 10 and the Common Vulnerability Enumeration Top 25, SANS Top 25. 
those security type geared sites that look around and say, these are the things that we're seeing pretty much everywhere. So if we can do something to help educate people so that they don't do the same mistake, that would be probably be very helpful. Sounds great. Before we just dive right into some technical jargon, and, and this one's not going to be too technical. The next episode will get actually more technical where we need to draw back on some very in-depth concepts. But uh, this time we're actually just going to talk about things that are relatively easy to understand from website type vulnerability perspective. So before we hop right on into that, we need to just do a quick recap on authorization. So somebody authenticates and that gives them a certain set of permissions. They're authorized to do certain things, right? But remember that the operating system is running at the very bottom of everything, scheduling these resources to run. So you've got your operating system running. And then for like a web service, we'd have a web, su- web server actually serving up the content. So that's going to operate under a different permission than the operating system. But the operating system has to kick it off. So it still has to operate under a context, like a user type context, right? And then within that web server, it might launch something like an, an engine on its own to do dynamic content presentment. And that might be a different credential than the web server itself running. So you have like three different user contexts already, right? And we haven't even had users into this mix. And then you have uh, potentially a backend database. So the database is running under a different user context. And then... You know, where do you have your users who are actually using this web server allocated? Is it at the OS layer? It's possible. Is it at the web server layer within the Java Bean engine or ASP engine? Or is it a database user that's just like a field within a database that contains the user information for the people who are going to log on and use the application? There's all these different possibilities. And the fact that there's these different possibilities makes different complexity possible. It makes complexity, which allow for things to go wrong, where where things can go wrong, they will, right? That's Murphy's Law. Yes, sir. There's a couple very common ways that people exploit the fact that that when somebody sends something out there, they haven't considered all the different possibilities of someone manipulating the service that they're putting out there. And if we've learned anything about past 20 years or so of internet, it's that there's a lot of creative people who are willing to try a lot of different things to see if they can make something break. Uh, One of the very basic ones, very easy to understand, is something called forcible browsing or forced browsing. And that is simply the person manipulating the URL bar to get to a section of the website that they're not supposed to get to or to have something happen in the web application that wasn't intended and that the developer of the application never thought that they would try to do. So some examples of this might be, you know, as easy as I can see on the in-security.org website what the most current episode version is. And if I change the number at the end of that, 
does that give me the next episode before people are ready to publish it? Because I'm just dying to see that content. So that's one example. We're using WordPress and WordPress has a whole bunch of PHP pages, which is the programming language that dynamically renders on the server side to show the content to people through their web browsers, right? Someone could find maybe a configuration file if the server wasn't protected properly and read that, the content of that. So perhaps they could find the MySQL backends login information if we hadn't protected it properly, right? So those are the type of protections that need to be put into place are the ones on the web server level for this type of activity, right? But within an actual dynamic thing like PHP or another very popular one is CGI, right? You can have these dynamic actions that you allow a person to do. So say you could have like, uh, you ever seen a question mark within the URL of a website? Yes, I have. So that typically means that there's an action that's being uh, there's the possibility for the other person to enter in content through this method. And it's usually by clicking on links or buttons or whatnot. But if that ends up in the URL bar, then it's very easy for someone to manipulate it. They can just go and change it. So if like there was something like a page question mark action equals read, right? What if somebody did page question mark action equals delete? Does that page disappear? Has the person who's programmed that page considered that action if it's one of the regular things that's allowed and either denied it through the access controls on the user themselves or caught that input and said, this is not something that anybody's allowed to do? I've used that sort of navigation structure oftentimes you'll find web comics and stuff like that that will just have the exact same url every single time then there's a question mark with a number at the end of it denoting the specific idea of each comic and there have been comics where the comics are hilarious but their user interface is abhorrent so i just try not to use that and i'll just type in the next number because it's faster yep i've absolutely done that as well for web comics back in the day um, but that's that's a example of forced browsing. And it's not like you had any malicious intent. You just did it, right? But there are people out there who have discovered that you can circumvent maybe some controls if the web app administrator or the system administrator of the web server hadn't taken the precautions necessary. I could see how that would readily be an, a, a big issue if you were using some sort of popular CMS or a content management system that has these types of controls and commands. And then right. basically the beginner user for these things are looking for a turnkey solution. And then they've got this setup and they don't even know that these are commands and that these are options. So they don't have any way to turn it off. So then it comes down to the developer to have to try and sort that out for them. Yeah. And it was definitely a lot more common um, back in the day when, CMS systems weren't as refined as they are today. But I mean, this is still a super popular vulnerability that's out there. So obviously people are either using old CMS systems and CMS systems aren't fail safe. There's, there's always constantly vulnerabilities announced on things like Drupal and WordPress, right? So the, there's obviously 
issues to be resolved there. And and if if you don't secure your web WordPress site, even as recently as half a year ago, there are steps that you had to do to make your WordPress site not expose the configuration files, which have, like I said, the configuration for the MySQL database. People have automated these things through these marketplaces and admin.php front end sites and services. It's still possible that someone's going to go in manually mess with something and say, ah, it's not working. I'll just give permission to everybody to do everything and leave it that way. I never actually thought to use this maliciously. And as a web developer, it's funny because I've actually played around with different ways to abuse it. In fact, as a joke, at one point, I created a website that was basically a ripoff of Wikipedia's layout. And then simply by editing the URL that you go to, uh, by adding a query string at the end of it, it would automatically generate the content for the page. So you would go to URL slash question mark Q equals and then put in whatever you wanted that Wikipedia entry to be so that you could just always win arguments at bars. <laughs> and you yeah. just be like, look, it's here in Wikipedia. It just says right here, Matt is super handsome. So it's on the internet. <laughs> it's got to go. be true. And it's on Wikipedia. And then right. I've also created a web page that was based exclusively off of 404s. How's that work? There was no pages on the actual site. So any pages that you tried to go to would generate a 404 page. And that 404 page specifically pointed you to an index.php. And the mm-hmm. index.php would simply parse whatever the actual URL was for the page that you were trying to get to. And then it would break that down and tear apart the parts of it. So it would generate a generic 404 page if it wasn't an actual page that was in there. And otherwise, if it was one of the ones that I'd actually created, it would tear apart the URL, find the specific file that you're looking for. So for instance, if you went to website.com slash English, then it would automatically load the English uh, splash screen. If you went to French, it would automatically load the French splash screen. If you went to Chinese, it would load nothing. It would just give you the generic 404 page. Okay. But it would give back a message saying something like Chinese not found here. Yeah. Well, it would just say, sorry, the page you're looking for is not found. Try either English or French. Oh, okay. And then it would actually link to the original thing. So that regardless of what people put in, they would end up getting the content that I wanted them to see. That's cool. So it was context aware, meaning that where in the directory structure, somebody started using these, throwing this other input, it would just say okay at this level we expect them to be back here or it would always just say okay no matter how far down if you start manipulating like the jpeg image name and that didn't find it it would say don't try english or french well i set it up through the ht access so that regardless of what folder or directory they tried to go into it would still just tear apart the url based on the specific folders and you could have different things but it would still just give a generic page leading back to the main page because it was effectively just for a a, a restaurant. So it was really very little content. Um, Main page, welcome screen about the restaurant, directions, hours, and a menu. Okay. So for our listeners that don't know, what is HT Access? The HT Access file is a server-side configuration file 
It resides on the web server. It works with multiple different web servers themselves, like Apache, for instance. And what it allows you to do is put a hidden file into specific directories. gives you the ability to override web server configuration for those specific directories. It gives you the ability to override on a per directory basis or for the children of those specific directories. So said differently, you put a file on the web server at the root of the web server that only the web server itself can read and not everybody else can read. And this will tell how to handle basic surfing and navigation? Pretty much, yeah. Common usage includes authorization and authentication, which would allow you to, for instance, password protect directories, rewrite URLs, which makes it so that you take a longer URL and you make them into shorter, more comprehensive ones. You can use blocking. You can stop specific IP addresses or domain names from accessing parts of your site. That's neat. I didn't know that. You can enable server-side includes. You can customize error responses. So instead of just a generic 404 page, you're able to actually use a custom one. Various other things like how the server will actually treat different file types. As an example, if you want the server to, instead of showing an image, display an image as a text file, then it will just give you whatever the code is that was included in the image, whatever the text would be. You can manage that using uh, htaccess files. I guess we should say that 404 is standard web code for page not found. Yeah. And there are other standard error messages with codes that people rely on to communicate these things technically. Some that I'm sure that all of you have run into at times. Before we get off the topic, thank you for that. Before we get off the topic of forced browsing, there's a couple more nefarious tricks that people have discovered over time. And that is that if you use the dot dot backslash, like if you terminate the URL with a slash dot dot, it actually goes a directory above where you currently are. And back in the day, web servers actually might be vulnerable to allowing you to escape the context of the web server and get to some place above that. So if you did like insecurity in dash security.org slash dot dot slash dot dot slash dot dot, you'd have gone back three directories and then you could specify slash etc to get to the um, Unix configuration, the Linux configuration directory and then do slash shadow for the shadow shadowed password file, which is a protected password file. Then potentially if the web server was running under root, it could show you the contents of that shadow file. This is something that's happened in the past. Um, there's another version of that same thing with Windows that allowed uh, the code red virus to go rampant about 10 years ago. And then there's other things like it doesn't have to just be dot dot. It could be a representation of a different character set that renders down to dot dot. Right. So when we were talking before about the different character sets, we said that like UTF-8 can handle all sorts of different languages and you can replace a dot dot with like a like a percent sign and some sort of characters that I can't remember, like a two zero or something. Or maybe that's space. Uh, one of the possible problems of that specific attack doesn't even need to be someone attacking your specific web page because you've got issues with things like 
shared hosts, you could find out what web web hosting service is hosting a specific website. And then by adding the dot dot to it, you would then drop out of your specific website. So for instance, if say, you know, Bank of Canada was hosted on the same web host as insecurity, anyone who did the dot dot would then end up going to be able to see the directory structure for a completely different website. Yes. And and you'd hope that the web administrator has configured permission so that, that the web server is not operating under root and that, you know, there are some sort of other bounding controls in, installed, but it was certainly an issue back in the day, which people are bound to reproduce when they come out with like a new web server. The mistakes of the past are bound to be repeated or something like that. Another thing that people actually do maliciously through this way is, I don't know if you've seen some web servers, some websites that you go to are really bad and they show in the URL bar, basically your user session, right? So you'll have like session equals one, two, three, four, five or something like that, right? Or, or user like account number equals one, two, three, four, five, say. And if you go and you manipulate that, you could say user equals one, two, three, four, seven. And if that person's also logged in and their session's active, you could potentially take over their session and do stuff on their behalf by this forced browsing thing. What is the likelihood of getting a proper session ID because aren't they really generally now at any rate generated very randomly? You'd be surprised. Recently, as of like a couple years ago, when AT&T first got the iPads, right? They had the IMEI number as something that you could scan and they'd have like a, a status page for anybody who registered their iPad with AT&T. And so with a computer, you can very quickly enumerate by trying every one. It's like a brute force slash forced browsing attack. Right. There was a guy who recently went to jail because he enumerated all of the iPad information because it contained things like AT&T was storing stuff that was readily accessible by people. And it had things like their first name, their last name popping up along with their IMEI numbers for their iPad devices. Right. And he just recently went to jail. I just, I can't remember his name, but it was a big story of 2013. So, I mean, AT&T did it. There's history of people doing it all over the place. There was another guy who got sued uh, last year for doing the same thing for some New Zealand bank. Um, People constantly make these mistakes of, of allowing the session enumeration through this technique to happen through force browsing is only one way in which you can do this, but it is a common mistake. So that takes care pretty much of force browsing. Oh, that moving between one user and another, there's a term for that. It's a privilege escalation, but instead of actually escalating your privilege vertically and getting a higher up power than you, you're doing it horizontally and getting another peer user access to their account. And before I go into the next topic, 
Why don't you give a little description about how HTML works and how JavaScript works? <laughs> how JavaScript works. I'm not so sure that I know that one. HTML stands for Hypertext Markup Language. Hypertext is structured text that uses logical links or hyperlinks. That structure that I refer to is called a markup language. Markup languages are designed for the processing, definition, and presentation of text. The language specifies code for formatting both the layout and the style within a text file. The code used to specify the formatting is called tags. HTML is one of the most widely known markup languages, but there are a variety of different ones. Some of the base tags for HTML define an entire page. You start out by opening with an HTML tag. That means that the everything contained within is going to be HTML. Then you've got a head tag, and inside that you have any header information. This is information that is used by the page, but not displayed on the page. After the head, you've got a body. The body then contains the actual content displayed on the page. Inside the body, there are tons of different tags to define how the text is either displayed, how the text is laid out, or what the text itself even is. There are header tags like H1, which just defines that it is a header of the type 1. By default, there are several different types of headers. The World Wide Web Consortium, or W3C, are generally the guys responsible for coming up with the standard for HTML. And as of right now, they're working on HTML5 and coming up with a solid standard for that, which will define even more tags and give the tags greater flexibility. Your web browser is really, to be fair, a very fancy text reader. The main function of it is that it's going to pull up an HTML page and then parse the information, read through the tags, and have the pages displayed the way that the HTML recommends that it needs to be displayed. This is why sometimes between different browsers, you'll have compatibility issues. Sometimes Browsers like Internet Explorer don't display tags the same way as other browsers like, say, Chrome or Firefox or every other browser on the market. And some of those tags that you were talking about can contain things like JavaScript callouts, right? As a user, you can usually review all of this by right-clicking on any web page that you're on and going to View Page Source. And you'll see that there's a hierarchical structure built through these tags and inside... You'll find oftentimes calls out to different JavaScript and Java applets. Uh, JavaScript is essentially a programming language or a scripting language that you can get the web browser to recognize different calls and controls that regularly are enacted by this JavaScript. Right. So I think it's fair to say that JavaScript is a programming language, but it's an interpreted language, which means that it is run, it is read and run as it's read and it's stored in memory, but it doesn't require any of the things we were talking about before with being compiled or whatnot. The engine to execute it can just read regular text. Like that's what a web page is, right? You could just see it in notepad. It's not something that's compiled or coded. 
It's just a document that is marked up like any other word processing document from the late 90s. Right. And it's the browser that strips out all of these tags and displays it in the way. So you'd have a tag that says, I want a new paragraph here, right? Which is like this uh, less than sign, P greater than sign. So you'll start with less than, then the tag name, and then greater than. Yeah, and and absolutely, like you said, you can view the source of a page and you can see all of these. And that, that way you can see exactly what the page was supposed to tell you. You can see maybe a developer's comments within that, all of those wonderful things. And you can see the entire script possible there too. So... And then JavaScript is, like we said, it's actually like a programming language. It's it's something on the web server telling your computer to do something. Right? And your computer faithfully goes and executes the JavaScript based on what it's allowed to do. And then it'll usually at the end present something back to the web server or maybe just render the page to look a certain way that's more fancy than what's allowed within the HTML markup language. There are some interesting components to HTML, though, that allow interaction. So there's like the possibility of an input box and post. You want to talk a little bit about that? Various different fields. You can have forms in HTML. Uh, The HTML structure has been built so that there is input forms that you can actually include. You have a variety of different ones. The basic ones are a checkbox, which is a box that you can either... Um, if you click once, it'll end up putting a check or an X in it. If you click it twice, it'll then uncheck it. Uh, there's the radio button, which has either an on or an off state. If you have f- several radio buttons in the same form, you can generally only have one on at a time, unless it's in a separate structure. You've got an input field for text, and now HTML5 is going to be including various smart fields for input for text you'll have an option for password which actually will automatically black out all the letters you'll have an option for email which will automatically check and make sure that you use the general email structure of word at symbol word period and then uh, a proper dot com dot ca dot org dot net type suffix Neat. There's various other fields. Those are simply uh, a string of text. Then you've got a text area, which gives you a large box within which you can type. It'll actually allow for uh, line breaks and line returns. So if you hit enter, it'll break, it'll jump to the next line. Hmm. Cool. And and these input boxes, that's... When I'm typing on my screen on my computer, it doesn't just send this stuff back to the server right away, right? No. Well, depending on how you have it set up, usually most web pages that are strictly HTML are static, which means the page loads and then until you either click a link to move to the next page or in a form setting there is usually a submit button, which is a button that you have to interact with. And once your fields are filled out, you hit submit that then 
loads the it does whatever the form action is so it'll either send the page or depending on how you have it set up so the form action will only take place once submit is hit and the stuff that i've filled out like my name address telephone number if that's what the page is giving me right and then i hit the submit button somehow it's got to distinguish between those three fields that i've set up how does it do that generally each field is given a unique identifier or an id or a name and then from that depending on what your for instance if you have two fields you've got a first name and a last name you would as a developer name the first one first name or last name and then as after the submit is hit that information gets passed on as a variable so when it if, for instance if you use post as your method for sending the form then it'll actually post that information over to the server if you use get then that's going to be different that i believe cool. post puts it into the url right. so then that gives you the ability to do your um what we were talking about just earlier with the the force browsing right so either way there's content going to the server right and sometimes like if if it's something like a um a forum or a comment or something like that that you're leaving on a product, it's possible that a user's entering in information that everybody else can see, right? Or if you remember, there was some old uh, internet chat web sites that you could just type stuff into and everybody else would see it immediately as soon as you had submitted that. And it's possible for someone to enter in content that will run actually JavaScript or some sort of script on everybody's browser who sees it because the browser doesn't know. It just says, hey, here's some script for me to run. So if the people who wrote this don't filter out the JavaScript and somebody enters in less than script, greater than, and then, you know, whatever they want your computer to do, like go to this website, download this. Um, One of the easiest ones is to simply have a redirect. Like you can go online within a couple of seconds, find the JavaScript string that you would have to enter to then create a tag. And all that tag's job is to do is automatically redirect the page to a new page. Right. So you could have a competing chat site that doesn't have this vulnerability there post this link and then basically siphon off everybody who wanted to go to this other chat program to use your chat program. You can even have your chat program look very similar. Exactly. And, and if you wanted uh, to do more than just a prank and perhaps that chat program had some sort of login program, you could harvest credentials that way. Your session has timed out. Please re-log in. And then once they've re-logged in, you just redirect them back to chat site. Right. So so this concept that we're talking about is called cross-site scripting. So the the one that we were just talking about where someone types it in and everybody sees it, that's actually called stored cross-site scripting. And then there's a different version of cross-site scripting called reflected cross-site scripting. And what that is, it's that's scenarios 
a lot more like it's the same vulnerability on the web server, but the scenario to trick somebody to do this is a lot more like a phishing email where somebody receives an email and says, here's a link, click on it. And within that embedded within that link, it contains the script to execute on the user. And then they get redirected or something like that to another site or they just, or they doesn't even affect them. They can still log into the site, but the people who had redirected them there to the attacker's website. So they'll get, they'll log in something in the background will log to the attacker's web server and now they have the session ID that you've logged into that um, original intended site that you clicked on the link for. So this is a way of harvesting somebody's session and you're for sure know that they just logged in because this is the, the whole trick is that you've convinced them to log in through this. Right. And if you don't, if they don't click on the link, then it never goes to your web server. But if it does go to your web server, you know that they've clicked on the link. Another common vulnerability is actually between that web server's application that's running and the database in the back end. Oh, I should actually say the reflected cross-site scripting and, and the stored cross-site scripting, it's both a problem with the way that the web server's interpreting the input. And there's ways that you can filter out on that input so that it doesn't have this vulnerability. So you would say, if someone types in the less than symbol, and the greater than symbol, I'm not just going to show that immediately. I'm going to filter that and I'm going to replace that with the HTML equivalent, right? So I'm no longer going to put the less than symbol, greater than symbol, just as the person input it. I'm actually going to use the Ampress and LT special character set that actually tells the web page that this is always going to be a less than symbol and not a tag. So it's a way of protecting your website from having the tag. And then the greater than symbol is the Ampress and GT. Yes, it is. Ran into that exact issue ages ago when I generated, I made a website, Kemware.org, and had created all of these vulnerabilities inadvertently. <laughs> so See? essentially what I had uh, ages ago was a simple text file that would be written to whenever anyone decided to click post. And so whatever content they had in there, that would then be included via a SHTML include because way back in the day, we didn't even have PHP or anything like that. So I would use those kind of includes and that would then import the text straight from the text file and just represent it. However it had been written. And as Anyone who has dealt with any sort of comments in any sort of forum uh, will know eventually spammers get there. Spammers will find the site and just start putting links to whatever their own product is. And so sure, after a while, you can redirect a page to some sort of pharmacy site that sells pseudo legal pills or whatever. What do you care if the, the original site's not being accessed? Yeah. So all they really needed was the one access and that's all they really cared about. So they did that and then they overrode it. And then at that point, that's when I realized that I had to create this because mostly I was working off of the honor system. I just didn't think that anyone of my friends would be malicious enough, but then the page gain, garnered enough attention online and started generating too much traffic. And so then as a result, I had to start building in these fail safes because that was also, I didn't ever really use a content management system. I just kept making one myself. 
So another common vulnerability where there's a database involved is something called SQL injection. SQL is short for SQL and SQL is short for structured query language. And it's the language in which database queries run against the database and can pull back information or, or manipulate the database. It's basically a structure in which you can query the database and make it do the things that you want to do, such as read information as to, you know, is the user allowed to log in or uh, is this password matching with the user? Or, you know, what data is stored there as far as, you know, someone's account details or whatnot. It's lots of different things. But the, the gist is that this SQL is uh, a way of querying the database and it actually works between the web application of the web server and the, the database that's housing all of the information that you might want to gain as a malicious person. So there's a, a concept called a SQL injection. And what a SQL injection is, is if the web server that's serving back content for you has the ability for you to insert information into it through these text boxes, these forms like you were talking about before, you could potentially enter in a SQL query where one was not expected. A common place for this to happen is a logon section. So where somebody has these forms for someone to log in, you have a username field where you expect somebody to put in their username and you have a password field where somebody's expected to put in a password. And then when they click on the submit button, that goes back and the web server presents the username and password back in that little query that's all handled from the um from the web server side to the backend database and saying, you know, is this username and password combination correct? And how it would do that is it would have something like a uh, select star, meaning select everything from users where name equals Matt and pass equals monkeys, right? Cause your password's monkeys in this case. My password's monkeys in every case. Every case, uppercase and lowercase. Ah, text jokes. Yeah. So say that that was the case, right? Say your password was not monkeys. Then it would return back saying, sorry, something went wrong. You know, your your username and password combination was incorrect because that where name equals Matt, it was found, but and pass equals monkeys wasn't correct. So it actually fails the criteria on that query back to the database and says not true, right? The result is not true. And then therefore we're not going to log this person in as this user. Now, if I'm a super clever, evil, bad guy, I can actually know that a database query is going to happen with this and interrupt the question that's going to go back. Remember back in episode two, I think it was, we're talking about Boolean logic where we said, and before it means both criteria have to be there. Right? So where name equals Matt and pass equals monkeys. 
but there's still it it's not done yet i can keep talking right and i can say or one equals one and if one will always equal one then it's going to say yeah that or clause is correct so i'm just going to go with that or clause and come back with true therefore i can log in as matt with the password of monkeys which is just a throwaway thing but the one or or one equals one if i can make the server send that back to the sql database that's always going to come back as true or a equals a or you know whatever whatever absolutely has to be true statement if you can make that happen then you can actually get that sql injection to work now that's the not the only type of sql injection that there is there are other types of sql injections uh, where it's not just logging in as somebody else but you could say perhaps where my username equals matt and my password equals drop table users guess what happens then if you don't sanitize the input you can have these really bad things happen and sanitizing the input in this case is the exact same thing as what we were talking about with the html code wherein you could simply tell it to take out anything that falls as a query or works as a, as a query that's one way of doing it so you can say hey if there's a semicolon in this or a single quote these are not valid passwords but maybe they are valid passwords maybe you want someone to have the opportunity of having special characters within their password right so there is another thing that you can do is you can parameterize the input which is a sql language type thing where you set it up on the database saying that um i'm going to handle anything anybody puts into this query through another query and make sure that it doesn't barf back uh, something that it's not supposed to do. Right. And that's SQL injection, and that's all that we have time for today. So those are some of the more common vulnerabilities. That's what's resulting in most of the websites being compromised around the world. Just very low-level, easy to understand, easy to do, very common mistakes. And I've given you examples of times when I've used every one of them. There you go. And that's a show. So thanks. It's great to get back at this with you, Matt. Yeah, it was great to get back at this uh, before you head off for vacation. Where are you heading now? I'm going on a Disney cruise, as a matter of fact. So I'm going to the warm Caribbean. Sounds fantastic. Well, I hope that you have a blast and uh, we'll get together afterwards for the next show for episode 12. Uh, Tell you what, buddy, you have yourself a great week. Thanks, man. You too. You too.